Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. For the Horde! This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken, the Forsaken.
Welcome everyone to episode 104 of Corps Run Radio. Today I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a new contributor to the show. He is going to make his debut and I already picked out plenty of videos he made to be featured on the show. We are going to hear from Matt's season show later on in today's episode. For now though, let us get started with the first of two segments from Hero Marodex about add-ons you might want to consider using in WoW Classic. In this video, we'll try to go over 10 of the best add-ons to have while leveling up in Classic WoW. And I'll also have links to all of these add-ons in the video description. And at number 10, we have Immersion Classic. This is the popular retail add-on called Immersion, which changes NPC dialogues into little boxes with their portrait, as well as a better looking interface option for selecting dialogue options and quest rewards. Absolutely not needed, just makes things look neater. And that's why it's only at number 10, even though I'm personally a big fan of this add-on. So I was really happy to see that they had a classic WoW version available from day one. And at number 9, we have Real Mob Health. In Vanilla WoW, you can't see the health of enemy NPCs, nor their buffs or cast, and this add-on will show you how much health the mob is supposed to have after you've killed it once or something. I'm not 100% sure how it works, all I know is after I kill something, it somehow finds out how much health it's supposed to have, and then the next time I kill it, it will give me an accurate representation of how much health it has. And if you like having information about the mobs you're killing, there's also another add-on called Classic Cast Bars, which will show you a cast bar when an enemy target is casting a spell. That way you can see how long it has to cast before you have to interrupt it or something. And at number 8, we have Bag Free Space Counter. This add-on is pretty simple, it just shows you at a glance how much free space you have in your bags. Which is super useful while leveling up, as it allows you to better track when you need to run back to town to sell your crap. Now, since Vanilla WoW doesn't show you the vendor price on stuff, there is also an add-on called Better Vendor Price, which shows you the vendor price of the items, as well as how much it would vendor for if you had a stack of it. And Item Tooltip Profession Icons, which will give you a little icon of an item if it's useful for a profession. And at number 7, we have What's Training. This add-on gives you a little panel in your spellbook, which will show you what abilities you can train next without having to look it up online. And it also tells you how much it costs to train those skills. So it's just a very helpful way to see what you'll be able to train next, as you level up, before you even run back to the class trainer, or to see if it's even worth running back to the class trainer to get your new abilities. And at number 6, we have Weapon Swing Timer. Now, this thing requires a little bit of setup in order to make it look less obtrusive. I personally think it's really good if you're playing a hunter especially for the first 1 to 10 range before you get a pet, as it will show you how long you have before you're able to auto-shoot again, and how long you need to stand still in order to perform that auto-shot. Which is super helpful for trying to kite mobs for normal leveling, 
as a hunter performs much more DPS if they're able to use their ranged weapon as much as possible before they're forced into melee range. And it also has a weapon swing timer for melee weapons, but I don't think that's as important as it is for hunters using this add-on. And at number 5, we have X to level. This add-on will display in the top left-hand corner of your screen and will track your experience gains and then tell you how much you need to do of certain things in order to level up. For example, if you're killing mobs, it'll tell you how many more of that certain mob you just killed you need to kill in order to get to the next level, as well as give you the number in the tooltip of the next mob you mouse over. And it does the same thing for quests, telling you how many more quests like the one you just turned in you need to do in order to level up. And at number 4, we have Simple Map. Now, in Vanilla WoW, when you open up your map, you only have the option to have it full screen, which is pretty inconvenient when you're trying to open your map while running through the world. Or for really anything else, you rarely need your map to be full screen when you're looking at it, and this add-on makes it not full screen, which is very convenient. And there's also another add-on called Map Fader, which will fade out your map when you're not mousing over it which pairs up very conveniently with Simple Map. And at number 3, we have Classic Aura Durations. In Classic WoW, you can't see how long your dots and debuffs last on enemy targets, and this add-on will allow you to see that, especially if paired up with another add-on called OmniCC, which will give you actual numbers in the countdown of the add-on to see exactly how long your debuffs and dots will last on the enemy target. And at number 2, we have Questy. This add-on will show you where in the world you need to go in order to collect items for collect quests, or mobs to kill for kill quests, and will even tell you if a mob is part of a kill quest if you mouse over it, just like it does in the live version of the game. Even though I have another add-on installed with quest guides, I still use this add-on alongside it, just for extra bits of information on the map and when mousing over quest mobs. And at number 1, my favorite classic WoW add-on, and that's Quartz. This add-on simply gives you a better casting bar when casting spells, or doing anything else that requires a casting bar, like collecting mats out in the open world, or collecting items for collection quests. The thing I love about this add-on is it actually tells you how long those cast times are, whereas the default one does not. So for example, if you go out into the world and collect an herb, the item will show you that it takes 5 seconds, whereas on the default one you have no idea how long it's taking, and I really like to have this information. It also has a weapon swing timer built into it, but it only works for melee attacks, which means I'd still recommend the weapon swing timer add-on, even if you get this one as well, if you decide to play a hunter. If you're playing a melee class, honestly I'd say quartz is all you need and you don't really need to get the weapon swing timer add-on. Alright, and that's it for this list. I actually use a little bit more add-ons than the ones I mentioned in this video, as even in the video itself, I actually mentioned 15 add-ons and not 10. But I did try to cut it down to the 10 most essential ones I'd recommend. So, if you want to download these add-ons, I'll have links to all of them in the video description. And if you know of any other add-ons that should have been mentioned in the video, I'd love to hear about them down in the comments, as well as ideas for future videos just like this one. My name is Aaron Keller. I started at Blizzard in September of 2001. The first game I worked on at Blizzard was World of Warcraft. I was on the team that designed and built dungeons and cities. The producer of the dungeon group came into our office one day and he wanted to assign out the different dungeons and cities for the entire project. And we just wrote them all up on a whiteboard 
Everybody just kind of went around and they would start picking what they wanted to do. And no one had picked any of the cities and so I picked Stormwind. I'm like, I want, I want to build Stormwind. And then it went around and everybody was picking different dungeons. I get to pick another city. And so I just kind of kept picking cities up, up there. And so I kind of became like the city guy. I remember the first day that we put Stormwind into the game, we put this little Easter egg in for the team. When you ran into it, it would play, we built this city on rock and roll. And you just hear, we built this city on rock and roll. And pretty soon it's like the whole office, it's playing everywhere. It was so cool. There was something so special when it launched. I played in a group with my wife and one of my good friends and my cousin and one other person. This was before I had kids. This was, this was a long time ago. Now I have kids and they love playing video games so I can recreate that original group with my wife and my kids and I can take other people through this experience and kind of watch it through their eyes and have them see this amazing living world for the first time. <laughs> That's what I'm excited about. Hello, everyone. A little while ago, we covered the story of Skolomance and the Western Plaguelands, which, of course, had a lot of people wanting to see the follow-up. See the story of the Eastern Plaguelands, like its Western counterparts. The Eastern Plaguelands, it was once a beautiful land and parts of the Kingdom of Lordaeron. Strathholm was the largest city of the kingdom, with its regional government centered around this city. But it too felt the effects of the plague. The grain that was meant to feed their people and sustain life, it been infected. Now it would cause them to die. Even worse, come back as mindless undeads in servitude of the Lich King. Their Prince Arthas did everything he could to stop it. But ultimately, he too fell to the schemes of the Lich King. After following Melganus and traveling to Northrend, he decided to pick up the Cursed Frostmourne to claim his revenge. He now serves the very thing that he tried to fight against. Death washed over the lands of Lordaeron and it made its way to the high home of the High Elves as they had need of their magical well of power. They needed the Sunwell. I dearly hope that there's a special place in hell waiting for you, Arthas. We may never know, Uther. I intend to live forever. If we follow the path that they took, the first location that pops up, that is the Maristad. Maybe not a name that immediately rings a bell as he now goes by the name of Lightcaller. But in life, Nefanos used Maris, the name of his family. The first and only human ranger trained by the High Elves themselves. This land was tended to by his grandfather, his father, and perhaps, if things would have worked out differently, by Nefanos himself. We can only wonder how many moments Sylvanas and Nefanos were able to steal away here before the darkness of the world took away their chances and their time. First, there was the Horde invasion to deal with, and then the Undead Scourge. Both of them would fall to the might of Arthas. Sylvanas fell to Frostmourne itself, whereas Nefanos, he was slain by Ramstein the Gorger, and both of them would regain control. Sylvanas was first, and one of the first things she set out to do was to bring back her champion. Her Banshee's voice, as well as just her presence, the memories of their lives together, it was able to set Nefanos free of the haze clouding his mind. I am yours, dark lady, he told Sylvanas. 
for all my days. During Classic, we would see him hang out at the lands of his family. And of course the Alliance, they had no idea of the true fate of Nefanos Maris. In their eyes, he was still a hero of the war. A tactical genius responsible for Alliance victory spanning a decade of conflict. They had no idea where his loyalties truly were. So heroes, they formed raids, they gathered their might and released Nefanos from his tormented undead life. Or at least that's what they thought. Feign death is a powerful ability and Nefanos was able to fool them in thinking that he was dead. The war chief's will be done. The Horde, they had him as their quest giver, handing out several quests. One of them would send him over to the Qualifian Lodge, where exiled High Elves were living out their days. When Arthas used the Sunwell, they found a power, it became corrupted. So much so that the High Elves, they were forced to destroy it. Millennia of feeding on these magics though, it had made them incredibly addicted. For the survival of their people, they were forced to drain magic, even from living things, which some amongst their race... They simply refused. They did not want to become some kind of vampire feeding on others. And so Lorfmar had told them to go. We come in the name of the champion of the Banshee Queen, the Horde said when they arrived. You have something that belongs to him. The copy of the registry detailing Nefanos' acceptance into the Farsiders. That's the thing he was after. And he made sure to have his forces leave as much strife and grief as possible within their wake. To leave these high elves suffering. And suffer they did. In time, we would see the Sunwell reignited, birthing a brand new future for the now-called Blood Elves. They were in a much stronger position now. One that had Lorfmar offer these exiles aid from Silvermoon. But they refused. They wanted nothing to do with Lorfmar and the allies that he keeps. Deal with the devil as you please. I can only hope that you get what you deserve. Lorfmar did not blame them for their reaction. He only felt sorrow for the way that things turned out. The elves at Qualifian Lodge, they'd seen hell over the years, living in the Plaguelands, and their fate would only be to fall to the very thing that they were exiled for. Their commander stumbled upon an item of magical energy, one that they simply couldn't resist. Its seductive power, it corrupted them, turned them into the wretched, fit only to be put out of their misery. We have made many sacrifices. Now another quest that was handed by Nefanos, that is to go out and collect relics from the Battle of Darrowshire. This is a town nearby, a battle worthy of song. This battle of Darrowshire took place when the Scourge forces rampaged across Lordaeron. It was cut off from the bulk of Alliance forces, but the town was bolstered by a company of troops, a contingent of paladins of the Silver Hand, and a staunch group of local militia led by Captain Joseph Redpaw. The Scourge first assaults on Darrowshire. They were sparrows, small groups of marauding skeletons and corpses. They wandered the outskirts of the village, and they were repelled. But the Scourge were not bogged by the defenders' tenacity, and responded in kind. Soon after the first wave of attacks, a second wave emerged. Champion Ghouls, servant of the ghoul Lord Horgus, screamed down from the hills and clashed with the beleaguered Darrowshire defenders. The defenders weakened, but were relieved by paladins, disciples of the Silver Hand. Their leader, Davil Crockford, he was a native of Darrowshire. He brought his followers to the village when he heard of the impending attack. And together with the defenders, they held back the servants of Horgus. When Horgus himself entered the battle, he met with Davil. For many minutes they fought, and Devil eventually prevailed, but he suffered a mortal wound and died soon after defeating the Ghoul Lords. The battle continued, and Captain Repov led his militia bravely. It might have been won had the captain not been corrupted by the Death Knight Marduk the Black. 
In the middle of the fray, Marduk rode up the red path, and with black magic, he tore loose red path spirits, twisting it into an evil shadow of the brave captain. The corrupted Captain Red Path then spread his evil taint amongst the defenders of Darrowshire, who betrayed their allies and slaughtered them. They then turned on the town of Darrowshire and killed all who hid in their homes. The remaining Scourge army, along with the corrupted spirit of Captain Repalf, then left the ravaged village of Darrowshire and tore into Lordaeron, adding to the pain and death of the war. And you held me fine, my dolly. We learn of this history through a very tragic questline with the spirits of little Pamela. Her aunt hid her away during the battle, but she doesn't know what happened to her and she wants us to check it out. Like her auntie. Pamela has a spirit now. She did not survive the horrors that fell upon Darrowshire. She's missing her family greatly, not to mention her dolly. It's easier for us to bring her back her doll, so that's the first thing that we do. And then it's time to mess around with time itself and recruit the aid of the bronze dragon Chromie. Now we can't exactly go around and change history entirely. Joseph Redpath, he still needs to die and become corrupted. But at least we could immediately end the suffering by defeating his corrupted form. That way, his spirits can reunite with Pamela, return home from the war, meaning that we've got a job to do. We find the annals of Darrowshire detailing the events of what happened here. Chromie then uses their magic, adding pages that describes the eventual fates of those that took place in the battle. We need that knowledge, as we need these relics of the past for the time magic to work. Horgus the Ravager fell at the Bell of Darrowshire, but the evil within him was not fully spent. The victorious Scourge forces removed his skull from the battlefield, carrying it with them to sow dread amongst the living that they faced. Days later, the company of Scourge who possessed the head were defeated by Silverhand Paladins. Horgus' head was then cast into the Blackwood Lake. Marduk the Black still lives, yet his sword was lost in a battle near Corin's Crossing. A dwarf captain shattered the sword on his enchanted shield, forcing Marduk to flee the field and win the day for the alliance. Marduk's sword sank into the earth and corrupted it, eating a gorge into the land, now known as the Infected Scar. Devil Lightfire died at the battle, but his bravery inspired the alliance throughout the war. His book, His Paladin's Librum, was recovered by Scarlet Crusade troops. It now resides in the town hall of Harkland often read by crusaders eager to draw from devil's strength. And then Joseph Repoff, he was killed during the Battle of Darrowshire. His spirit was corrupted and took a new shape, and this creature spread great evil in Lordaeron. At Garen's withering, east of Anderhal, the corrupted Repoff was finally defeated by Alliance forces. His shield still rests near the barn of the plague's farmstead, and skirt minions are still drawn to the memory of his evil. The bundle of relics, as well as skulls of the Scourge who participated in his battle, their place within town, allowing us to relive the battle as it played out. Only this time, the corrupted Joseph is not allowed to leave Darrowshire. We end him here and now, forgiving him for what has happened and reuniting Pamela with her daddy. Now not all of the Repalves have been wiped out though. Her older sister left Lordaeron during the first Horde invasion, whereas her uncle, Carlin Repalve, he survived the Battle of Darrowshire and then joined the Argent Dawn. We actually found him at Light's Hope Chapel, which has been pretty much the remaining bastion of light in this area against these invading undead forces. When Arthas decided to purge Strathholm and Uther refused to follow that order, 
he told him and his fellow paladins of the Silver Hands that their organization was suspended from service. Have you lost your mind, Arthas? These paladins, they flow out of an organization called the Church of the Holy Light, which goes way back in time, more than 2,000 years ago. We're talking about a time period in which the early humans, they teamed up with the High Elves to take on the trolls. Trolls that weren't too happy with these new settlers in their lands. Even to this day, we can still find remnants of the trolls in the Plaguelands, like at the area called Zul Mashar. Sadly though, like so much in this land, they've fallen to undeath. So back in the day, visions from strange forms, thrumming with holy power, they sparked the human's faith in the holy light and became the predominant human religion. Centuries later, Lordaeron's leaders codified the different light-based traditions and belief systems. From these efforts, the Church of the Holy Light came to be. Lordaeron served as the home of this church, with the most important place of worship located in the Verdant Eastwald, the original name of the Plaguelands. Amongst the oldest and most revered of these holy sites, that was Anderhall, Light's Hope Chapel, Strathholm and Tears Hand. Then the Horde came to Azeroth, and Alonso's fall, he came up with the idea of combining the teachings of the church with the skills of a warrior. Just like that, the first paladins of the Silver Hand came to be. A great asset in the war against the Hordes. And now Arthas, he wants to put them out of service. The boy was not a king yet though. Nor did the paladins simply stop being paladins because their prince told them to do so. These members of the Silver Hands, they would continue on the battle, continue to defend their lands against the darkness. Many of them were slain when Arthas returned as a Death Knight. Yet the light is not easily vanquished. Some of these defenders would then go on to form an organization known as the Argent Dawn, whereas the most zealous ones amongst them, they would form the Scarlet Crusade. The Scarlets were infiltrated by a dreadlord, manipulated from within, pushing them ever further and further to the point where they could no longer see the difference between the living or the undead. All of them that did not stand with them, they had to be purged within the light. So yeah, not the best organization to find yourself in. Not a whole necromancy thing, raising the fallen into undeath. It did not just count for those recently slain. Heroes of the past, warriors, priests, paladins, champions of battles long gone, they were buried in cemeteries and catacombs. They quickly figured out that they couldn't let the Scourge get their hands on them. So after Arthas had killed his father and the Scourge rampaged through their lands, a secret mission began. It was decided that their honored debt would be transported to the Light's Hope Chapel. This small, out-of-the-way location, it was perfect to rebury them within the sacred crowns. A thousand of the bravest souls to walk the earth, together here, combined, they can defend these sacred crowns. We've seen this take place. We've seen the heavens open up here as Darian Mograin sacrificed himself, which decimated the forces Kalfuzad had sent out to try and claim the chapel. That day was saved, yet dying while fighting the scourge. It often means that you wake up fighting on the other side. In this case, Darian returned as a death knight, leading the forces of the Ebonholds, pushing the Scarlets out of the enclave and then onto the assaults. Now he was attacking the chapel that he had given his life for to defend. Arthas the Lich King, he knew full well that his death knights, they were sent to their doom. But in his eyes, it was well worth the sacrifice if a man drawing out High Lord Tyrion Fordring. Tyrion was a member of the Order of the Silver Hand, but was kicked out when he helped out the Orc Etric. This forced him to leave his family behind, living his life in exile for quite some time. We could even find him during Classic, help him try to save his son. Talon Fordring, he had renounced the Order of the Silver Hand. With so many of the members that his father in exile, he decided to join the Scarlet Crusade. In Northdale, he dropped the symbol of lost honor. A symbol of the silver hand that we recovered. 
Again, not an organization that Tyrion wanted his son to be a part of. So we tried to get him out. Tried to convince him to come with us. And Talon actually tries to leave this corrupted organization. Keyword tries though, as he sadly doesn't make it out alive. To which Tyrion, he comes out of exile and eventually makes his way to Light's Hope Chapel. Now the Lich King's betrayal, it would cost him dearly, as Darien he throws the corrupted Airring into Tyrion, which cleanses it, returns it to its original light state, and forces Arthas to retreat. In front of the chapel, Tyrion declared that the Argent Dawn and the Order of the Silver Hands, they would come together as one, combine their forces in the Argent Crusade, bring Arthas down for what he has done to them. Even the Death Knight decided to join him on this crusade, an impossible mission that took them to Northrend, but they completed it all the same. There must always be a Lich King though. So Tyrion places the helmet on Bolvar Four Dragon, and then returns home to Hearth Glen. During Legion, the High Lord's life was ended by the demons, to which he passed on the Ashbringer, and Paladins of the World, they united in the Order Hall, right here within Light's Hope Chapel. The Death Knights also had the Order Hall, and they thought it would be really really cool to try and claim the body of Tyrion, make him a member of their Four Horsemen. But the Lights had something else to say. This chapel is protected by more than just sword and shield. To the east, we find another one of those sacred holy places. To the east lies Tyr's hand. In the past, there was actually quite a bit of speculation going on here on the naming of this place. Was there perhaps a connection to Keeper Tyr? Was this the place where he had fallen? Was there a connection to the darkness beneath Tyr's fall? The Chronicles has now cleared all of that up. Tyr's heroic sacrifice, it made him a legend amongst the Vraiku and eventually the humans. That is the reason why they named these areas after Tyr. This city also held its ground as the Scourge washed over the land, allied to the Order of the Silver Hand until the faction started to splinter. They then decided to team up with the Scarlet Crusade. An organization infiltrated by Dreadlord is not the healthiest to find yourself in. The fate of the Scarlet Crusade is truly tragic, if somewhat ironic. At one point, they led the charge of humanity against the undeads. Now they resemble those corpses that they once hunted. Together with the Brotherhood of the Light, another sub-faction that's art and crusaders at the core, except with less morals, guilt, and other useless human emotions to keep them in check. Together, we clean out Tears' hands of the now undead Scarlet Crusade, and we claim it for the Light once more. In many ways, the Scarlet Crusaders... They were well-intentioned, but their zeal it grew too strong and their hate blinded them to reason. We can only hope that the same doesn't happen to the Brotherhood of Lights. I offer service with a smile. The last thing to talk about for the Eastern Plaguelands, that is of course Fiona's caravan. Added with the Cataclysm, this caravan, it guides adventurers through the Eastern Plaguelands, going through the stories that we talked about, getting more passengers as we go. The more passengers that we have, the more people that we help out, the more zone buffs we gain access to. For example, there's Fiona's Lucky Charm, that will give you a chance to loot extra golden items from creatures. Argus's Journal, which gives you a 2% experience bonus, but anyone with a heart, you will of course pick Pamela's Doll. This will cause Pamela Redpath to follow you on your adventure, and it doesn't really offer a buff, it's just fun company, but it does give you a chance to show the spirits more of the land. This caravan is traveling here because Gitwin Goldbraids and Terranar Sunstrike, they both want to join the Argent Crusade. Whereas the Blood Elf, he has a more natural affinity to the lights. His dwarf buddy, he always spends his time studying, keeping up and pushing him every step of the way. Despite some protest, their journey to Light's Hope is interrupted a couple of times. Breaks at Crown Guard Tower and Light Shield Tower. 
Primor can be found in the zone, namely Eastwall, North Pass and Plaguewood. Now back in Classic, Blizzard tried to promote a little bit of world PvP with an event called A Game of Towers. Horde versus Alliance, fighting over control. For each tower that your faction was holding, all members of your faction within the Eastern Plaguelands, they deal 1% extra damage against undead enemies. If your faction then controls all 4 towers, this buff is increased to 5% in total. Each of the towers, it also offered special bonuses, like for example there was a ghostly flying mount to fly to the other towers. You could get an extra graveyard, NPCs to help you fight another tower, and a 5% hit buff. Truly epic rewards to go for, and from what I remember, people didn't really care. They didn't really care a whole lot about this event, which might explain why it was removed with the Cataclysm. So our buddies from the caravan, they eventually do make it to Light's Hope Chapel. They go through the trial and they become official members of the Argent Crusade. Gidwin, the one who already wasn't too happy about all these breaks that we took, he quickly became restless and goes out to fight the undead, when then he's captured by the enemy. A powerful paladin like himself would make for an incredibly strong death knight. So chances are that they haven't immediately killed him. Together we do everything that it takes to track him down. And together we confront Baroness Anastery and save Gitwin's life. <laughs> Fantastic! And there ends our adventures in the Plaguelands. Both Fiona and Akrudo, they would go on with adventuring together. You might even remember seeing them on alternate Draenor. And the name Anastery. It might sound familiar to those of you that have stepped into Strathon before. She's one of the bosses that you need to kill in order to make your way through the eternally burning city. However, I want to save the story of Strathholm for next week to give it a proper time that it deserves. So for now, thank you very much for watching everyone. By all means, let me know in the comments down below which zone you'd like me to cover next. It can be anything on Azeroth, even Outland or beyond. Truly your call. As always, subscribe if you like my videos, leave a like if you enjoyed this one, and until next time, see ya! This was worth the grind Not the Just die in queue Cause I'm a warlock And my dips just won't stop I might find HKs with all my achievements unlocked Never used a rape buff Just like a warlock And I won't go down cause I'm hot just like a rock And I won't cry if I ever die My skills are quite a shock Cause I'm a warlock I can't help topping charts If I top you, please don't take it too hard To whom it may concern Watch out for my fears now, all y'all just have to learn Cause I'm a warlock 
And my tips just won't stop I might find HKs with all my achievements unlocked Never used a rape bug Just like a warlock And I won't go down cause I'm hot just like a rock And I won't cry if I ever die My skills are quite a shock Cause I'm a warlock And I said hey I don't take crap if I go I'll just have to use lifetime People fear me when I cap And I said, hey, I don't take crap if I go Boom, I'll just have to use lifetime People fear me when I cap Cause I'm a warlock And my tips just won't stop I might find HKs with all my achievements unlocked Never used a rape bug Hi, I'm Hazel, and today I've got some tips for making and keeping your gold in Classic WoW. You'll need between 64 and 80 gold for your first mount at level 40, and a lot more than that for your epic mount at 60. All that's not about to happen by accident, so I rounded up some advice. Tip 1. Loot and sell everything. Since this is an age before mission tables and world quests, a lot of the gold entering the game is from vendoring item drops. Grey items, white gear, weird greens with bizarre stats that nobody wants, the vendor will take it all. Of course, your bags are going to limit how much you can carry around, so get in the habit of sniffing out vendors and going back to them often. Also, don't forget that AoE looting is not a thing in Classic, so you gotta loot each mob individually. Tip 2. Make a bank alt. Vendoring's great, but lots of things will sell on the auction house, and nobody's got time to stop questing and run all the way back there. Make a level 1 character, run them to an auction house, and you've got yourself some extra storage and easy posting. Anything that you think might sell, mail it to your bank alt and try. Now, there is a one hour delay on all mail arriving, even when you send it to yourself. Even so, it's still faster than dragging yourself all the way back to an auction house on your teeny tiny little feet. I do advise you though to be careful and keep an eye on the vendor price of whatever you're selling so you know when to give up and just vendor it. I use an add-on called Vendor Prices to show me those in the tooltips even if I'm not at a vendor. It's very handy. While on the topic of the Vendor Prices add-on, the other thing that it can do is show you the lowest value item in your bags. Ideally you make it back to a vendor before your bags fill, but sometimes life happens. Hold down left control while this add-on is installed and vendor prices will show you the trashiest trash to delete so you can pick up your slightly less trashy trash. Tip 4. Do not train every skill at your trainer. New options become available every other level, but you don't need all of them to reach 60. Some of those are pricey and can wait until later or even never. There's no point in going broke for a new rank of a button you never use or a new button that you will never use. If you're not sure what's worth picking, there's lots of guides that highlight the essential skills for leveling. I know Wowhead has some. Train the good stuff and skip everything else. Speaking of skipping skill ups, tip 5 is don't train any crafting professions unless you really know what you're doing. It's a lot of gold not only in materials, but even just training new recipes to level them. The payoffs are possible, but risky. It's much safer while leveling to just take two gathering professions, sell everything, and worry about crafting later. 
Tip six, for double gathering professions, consider skinning. You can certainly do mining and herbalism, but you can only track one of those at a time on your map. So one of those and then skinning can be a little more efficient unless you've just got an eye for spawning nodes. If you take skinning, consider leveling in areas with lots of beasts and keep an eye for players that leave behind trails of bodies. I'm not saying follow them, but you know, someone's gonna. Tip seven, consider leveling fishing. There's a few fish in particular that should be in demand. Stone scale eels are used in endgame flasks, so those are a good one. You can get those from pools near Gadgetzan and Tenaris. Oily blackmouth are also used in alchemy and you can find those around Darkshore, also the wetlands. And deviate fish are just fun and those are found in the barrens near the whaling caverns. Tip eight, get an auction house add-on. I don't care which one, but you need something. The default UI makes it awful to try and see what the cheapest buyouts are, which is gross for both selling and buying. There's a few auction house add-ons around, but here's what I'm using right now. So Auction Faster is a classic specific auction add-on, and I've actually been using this over both Trade Skill Master and Auctioneer. Especially while leveling, you're probably just trying to sell something quickly and less worried about scanning the entire planet for a map of the economic landscape. Auction Faster makes it very easy to sell things for their going price and buying the cheapest version of whatever you're shopping for. I will say that it has been slightly wonky for me recently, mine may need an update, but on the whole, this is the experience that I prefer for Classic right now. Tip nine, focus on the rep for the mount you want. You'll get reputation discounts on your mount purchases. So if you're exalted, you could pay 64 gold rather than 80 for your first mount. For the epic one, you're looking at 800 rather than 1000. It's a big deal. If the mount that you have your eye on is not your racial mount, you'll need to be exalted anyways just to train the riding skill. So focus as much as you can on just the one rep. Even if you are planning on buying your racial mount, rep will still get you a discount. So this advice applies. Faction rep comes largely from questing, so I recommend pick just one faction and then hunt down the quests from them. Do keep in mind that warlocks and paladins do not need to buy their level 40 mount, so if you're playing one of those, don't stress so much. Also, if you ask me, half the fun in classic comes from following your heart, so if you feel like you want to train every skill and level professions and be broke as a bucket, you do you. So those are the basics of classic gold. If you've got any great tips that I missed, feel free to share them down in the comments. Thanks for watching and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye! Hey guys, what's up? Mad Season here, back with another video for you. With Classic coming out, I thought it would be appropriate to do another video in my Tips and Tricks series, this time exclusively for Classic. The game as a whole is much more unregulated compared to current, so there are a lot of nifty things that you can do to make your life a bit easier. First up, we have mob separating. Inevitably, you'll be questing or grinding, and you'll be faced with a group of enemies that you might not be able to solo. But luckily for Classic, you can separate any group of enemies. If you keep hitting just one, the others will eventually head back to their spot, as long as you don't hit them. Over the years, they've added hard limits to how far mobs can run, or they'll just stick on you like there's no tomorrow, but in Classic, you can use this little trick to whittle down large groups of enemies. There are also a ton of items that you can get at low level that are quite vital at level 60. One of them is the Hydro Cane, which gives you underwater breathing. You'll notice that your breath timer is much shorter in Classic compared to Current, and with some quests requiring you to do some spelunking, it can get pretty tight. This staff is a lifesaver, and because it's a weapon, you can simply switch to it when you're just about to run out of breath, and then switch back to your normal weapon, so it's not like you're sacrificing other stats really. 
It drops off of the Viscous Followed Boss in Nomaragon, which is a level 30-ish dungeon. The fastest way to farm him is to drop down right here on this giant gear, and he'll be patrolling around this room. The staff itself has around a 30% drop rate, so it's not too bad. Weapon skills are a thing in Classic. Each weapon has a skill attached to it that you need to level up, or else your enemies will just parry you over and over. It can be pretty time consuming, especially if you're a warrior or something and you have so many weapon types to level. Well tip 1 is that the intellect stat actually increases the speed at which you level your weapons. A lot of people forget about that, but the real tip lies in the Badlands. In this zone there are these servant mobs, and these are actually part of a quest. At low health they become target dummies basically, and you're supposed to use a quest item to finish them off and it was actually common back then for hunters to drag these mobs to Ironforge just to troll people. However, you can use your immortality to level your weapon skills really efficiently. Just get them low and go AFK while auto attacking and come back to 300 weapon skill. Another essential item is the Jungle Remedy. On use, it cures diseases and neutralizes poisons. In the current game, there would be some text saying that this is ineffective on diseases and poisons past a certain level, but again, with how unregulated Classic is, this is still 100% potent even at level 60. It drops off of the Curzon Witch Doctors, Medicine Men, and Head Shrinkers located in the Northern Stranglethorn Vale at about a 30% drop rate, and they'll be extremely vital for PvP. Crippling Poison, Viper Sting, Serpent Sting into a Vanish if you're a rogue, and even in PvE, there are some really harsh diseases that this thing can cleanse. I remember on my Paladin, if I was in Ironforge, people all the time would ask me to cleanse some random disease that they had, because they could last up to an hour back then. For any Warlocks out there, you'll find that Soul Shards are of course present in Classic. You get these by draining the soul of an enemy when they die, and they're needed for various spells such as your Soul Stone, your Health Stone, Summon, and even damaging spells such as Shadow Burn and Soul Fire. They can be troublesome to farm as you only get them from appropriate level enemies, which at level 60 limits your options. One of the best spots in the game though can be found at the Ravenhill Cemetery in Western Duskwood. If you use your Detect Invisibility spell, you'll see a bunch of high level ghosts wandering about, and they make for a really quick Soul Shard farm. They're close to the Zulgarub Raid and also the Blackrock Mountain, which of course holds the Molten Core and Blackwing Lair, so it's a convenient location as well. And one last thing to say is that for any Alliance out there, the fastest way to get there isn't through Darkshire, but rather just going east from the Sentinel Hill. And another item that can be really handy is Dartal's Rod of Transformation, which for the most part is a vanity item. It turns you into a furbulk for a few minutes until you get hit, at which point the effect will dissipate, but it's really useful for mind games. As you can see, you get glowy hands whenever you cast it, so paladins and priests can often bait out interrupts by using this without fear of being locked out. Trust me, it does work. Not everyone has a caspar add-on. Look, I'm telling you guys, the big vanilla brain, okay? It is alliance only, and you can get it from a quest chain called Rain's Cleansing that starts from the NPC Rain Wolf Runner, located right here in the Ashenvale Zone. Just make sure that you stop at the part where you get the rod, or else you'll lose it, of course. And here's another oldie, but a goodie. If you finish a dungeon run and you find yourself without your hearthstone up, you can implement what is known as a ghetto hearth maneuver. If you leave group, after 60 seconds you'll be teleported to your hearth location, and if you're the leader and you still want to do this, simply make someone else lead before leaving and it should still work. And for any fishers out there, in classic there exists two seasonal fish. 
the winter squid, which can only be caught between the dates of September 23rd to March 19th, and the summer bass, which you can get from March 20th to September 22nd. The winter squid is the more sought after one since it's used for the grilled squid consumable, which is the best agility food, and the bass is used for spirit, which is still handy, mainly for priests who want to save some gold because there are some better options for spirit food. So for gold making, if nothing else, make sure that you pay attention to when these are on and off season, and you can make some extra gold by selling off season fish. Classic launches on August 27th, so you'll have less than a month to catch the summer bass, and once the 23rd of September rolls around, it'll be unavailable for six months, which may be an opportunity to score some easy gold. And next, we have another useful item, and that's the magic dust. This puts an enemy to sleep for up to 30 seconds, and any damage caused will awaken the target, and only one at a time. Once again, another item that's fully usable even on level 60 enemies. Basically a free CC for any class. You get it from the Dust Devils patrolling around Westfall, so a bit easier to farm for Alliance players, and it's going to be a must for PvE and PvP. It drops at a 50% rate, which isn't bad at all. And lastly, we have a tip for any Alliance players out there. In the Hillsbrad Foothills zone, the Horde have a quest to summon an undead necromancer named Helkular. It's a bit dangerous for them, as they have to go to the South Shore Graveyard, but in return, he'll terrorize the low-level quest hub for a short while. He's a level 44 elite, and what's special about him is that he always drops a green item guaranteed. As a result, he's really lucrative for gold farming, especially during the launch of the game as there will be plenty of horde going through the quest to summon him, so you can just camp his spawn if you want some easy gold. But that's about it. I do have more, but I think 10 per video is a good point to stop. I'm sure some of you experts out there knew about some of this stuff, but like with most of my guides, these are mainly aimed towards beginners, so hopefully it helped someone out there. I'll try to get working on the next part pretty soon. I hope that you found the video helpful, like it if you liked it, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Farewell for now, mortals. We hope you enjoyed today's video. See you again soon. My name is Jeff Kaplan. I started at Blizzard in May of 2002, and the first game that I worked on was World of Warcraft. The very first thing that I added to the game was some of the earliest quests in Westfall. Probably my legacy is going to be the Green Hills of Stranglethorn quest. You had to collect 18 pages strewn about Stranglethorn. I just wrote this short story that took place of these characters. It was uh, Hemet Nessingwary, and I was telling his story like this famous hunter in Stranglethorn. He was based on Ernest Hemingway, because I'm a huge Hemingway fan. If I just put the story in the game, nobody's ever going to want to read it. If I had all these pages and I made them tradable, then it would create this whole social dynamic for people trying to complete the quest. All I did was succeed in annoying everybody and putting a really crappy quest into World of Warcraft. I came in one weekend and I placed creatures all in the dead mines. They were not real placement. We didn't have the tool yet to do it. So all the work I did that weekend, I took screenshots of everything and then I made a top-down map where I put literally every creature and what its wander path should be. Do it. Follow me, follow right. me. I showed it to the design team and said, 
well, this is my idea for the Dead Minds. We all worked on the dungeons together after that, and I was very fortunate to be allowed to be made one of the point people on the dungeons, one of the things that uh, I was very proud of. Playing WoW Classic today, I can't help but think of all the moments of actually working on the content. The nostalgia of playing is always mixed with the nostalgia of making the game and the great people that I was so fortunate to make the game alongside of. Hey, it's all with another video on World of Warcraft's game design. I want to give a big thanks to our patrons and to our subscribers for their support so I can keep giving insightful feedback on the game that we all want to succeed, right? Yeah, of course. World of Warcraft Classic is more than just a dream. It's a reality that we can look at with a very clear lens today. Seeing the hardest content at the time being demolished within days of it opening, even if it's from the most knowledgeable and dedicated of players, leaves new and lasting impressions on how difficult endgame content was. Or wasn't. The same goes for the outdoor experience, specifically leveling, which is the stage that most players in Classic are still on right now. Over the past week or so, it's been fascinating to see a sudden attitude shift without so-called quality of life improvements like shared mob tagging, or features that aren't really features, like seeing the same people more than once on your realm because really you're supposed to see only people from your realm. But because a majority of players aren't max level and spamming trade for Onyxia attunement runs, the jury is still out whether the social structure of Classic is going to be as rosy as some say. The notion of realm or server identity isn't quite there yet, and for the most part realm identity is limited to language, whether it's the streamer server or not, or if there's still a big-ass queue. But among many Classic fans, the verdict is in for today's WoW, and its flaws run deep. At the core of these flaws are Blizzard's invisible hands that dynamically controls who you see out in the world. And these controls turned WoW from a collection of realms with their own personalities into virtual mega-servers. Cross-realm and sharding technology is going to be the topic of today. And for the sake of argument, let's try to agree on this one statement. That these features, while they had the best of intentions, they've warped or otherwise destroyed the sense of community and realm identity. I believe Blizzard did mean well when first implementing these cross-realm shenanigans. There's nothing wrong with wanting it to be easier to bring players together. So I want to ask, what went wrong with this feature? And can we basically kill it? I can almost feel your fingers typing away at your quick solution, but for now, I encourage you to hold off on that. I can guarantee you that undoing a system that has permeated its way into the game this deeply is not going to be nearly as easy as you'd think. This is not going to be a short video, and I'm just making a presentation here. Actually doing something, that's going to be the real challenge. But until then, strap in. We're going for a ride. Now that WoW Classic is out, you should be familiar with this conversation. Hey, are you playing the World of Warcraft? Yeah. Sweet, you playing Horde or Alliance? Alliance. Nice. What server? Ashkadi. Ah, crap, I'm on Mancrick. Bummer. Believe it or not, relationships do form from outside the world of Warcraft. We might meet new friends, classmates, 
co-workers, people of interest. And since WoW's launch, people have come and gone. As we grew with the game and met new people we shared a love for the World of Warcraft with, it would be cool to play with each other without having to shell out real cash to do a transfer. At one point, the state of realms in the World of Warcraft was fragmented, to say the least. In the US region, players were spread across 240 realms, with the last one opening up early 2009. Even then, the sense of balance between realms was really shaky. Big realms got bigger, while small realms were left hanging. Faction imbalances grew worse over time because of player attitudes and balance changes. Blizzard had choices to make, but at the time, the option of merging realms together was not one of them. Some have said it's because it would make Blizzard look bad to investors, whatever that means. But the team has consistently been on message about one thing, and that's to preserve the sense of community within said realms. It's one thing for players to migrate to and from a realm, causing a slow and steady shift in what makes that realm special. But taking entire realms along with their players, their economies, and the general climate, and forcing them together would be far too disruptive. That's why in WoW Classic, Blizzard has been extremely conservative about adding realms because they're once again concerned that history might repeat itself. Unfortunately, in their first go with the World of Warcraft, Blizzard also went down a path that did in fact bring realms together in a disruptive way. And then, they went on to make it far worse than realm merges could ever have been. Whoops. So we're going to take a historical glance at what Blizzard's done to WoW over the years. But if you're already familiar with this part, you can click on the timestamp below in the description to skip to the solutions that I'm proposing for the long-term health of WoW. It all started with Crossrealm Battlegrounds, which came as early as vanilla. This didn't seem so bad back then, considering the competitive nature of Battlegrounds. You could even say that it heightened the sense of realm identity, because you would see someone from a certain realm and you would think, ugh, that's the guy from the realm that sucks. The Looking for Dungeon tool was introduced in patch 3.3, a few months after the last realm was added to the US region, bringing the total to 240, according to Wowpedia. To this day, the LFD tool is looked with a level of controversy. The most often used talking point is that automatic matchmaking replaced the need for social interactions between players. More recent tools, notably the pre-made group finder to facilitate grouping in more difficult content, has diminished the impact of the LFD tool. But it still set up that negative stigma. Personally, I think that there's a lot more at play here, but the point isn't wrong either. During the Cataclysm expansion came Real ID, and shortly after, the ability to invite Real ID friends cross-realm into dungeons. Contrast to the automatic system of the LFD tool, being able to manually invite your faraway friends was well-received, because it answers the original concern of getting players who know each other connected, as opposed to automatically being paired up with some typical rando. Later in Cataclysm came the Raid Finder difficulty, using a pool of players across multiple realms. Realm identity felt compromised by this stage, and this single statement may sum this up. The witnesses to your accomplishments were complete strangers. They don't care, and neither do you. The point is that when it came to grouping together for instance content, the pool of players grew from realm, to battle group, to an entire region's worth of players. 
And yet, despite the growing feeling of anonymity, as dungeon crawls became dungeon runs, and those dungeon runs became races thanks to Mythic Plus, this method of grouping is still voluntary. You can still invite your favorite teammates to be a friend, or even a battle tag friend. If they're more local, hey, invite them to guild. Believe it or not, using matchmaking tools in the world of Warcraft is meant to be your secondary option if your friends or guildmates aren't on. But in an industry where keeping your attention grows more challenging every day, Blizzard opted to get players to spend less time waiting and more time playing. However, unlike the group building tools for instanced content, cross-realm zones and sharding are anything but voluntary. Cross-realm zones came with the launch of Mist of Pandaria. The point of this technology was to make playing through the first eight years of WoW expansion content not feel so lonesome. If you're in the Barrens, hey, you might run into a few other players who just so happen to be in the Barrens too, they're just on another realm. A feature like this sounds pretty cool, until I keep talking. Seeing other players cross realm has its drawbacks. For example, you might run into an enemy player who might start trouble until they move to a different zone and then suddenly, poof, they gone. You can't trade with people cross realm. But most critical is that the person that you see running by may never cross paths with you ever again because you're on one of maybe dozens of versions of the same space. Cross-realm zones were meant to inject life into old leveling zones, like ambience. In my opinion though, it's a lie. It's an overcomplicated solution to a minor problem that ended up causing way more issues than it solved. Later in Mist of Pandaria, Blizzard seemed to have reneged on their mandates to not disrupt realm communities, announcing that they would take certain realms and permanently connect them. By the end of their year-long campaign, Blizzard brought the number of realms in the US region from 240 to half of that. Realms were connected according to population and faction balance, or imbalance. Some connections involved only two realms, while in a few cases, up to six realms were connected together. And yet, when you're choosing realms in-game, you don't see this being reflected at all. So if you wanted to choose between the Deathwing, Caligos, and Executus realms, hey, don't worry, because they're all the same realm. Warlords of Draenor brought in the pre-made group tool, which isn't so much an addition, but it's more like a supplement to everything that's going on. Legion gave the World of Warcraft sharding technology, basically an upgrade to the original cross-realm system. This brought population control to a whole new level, by not just bringing players together on underpopulated areas, but by separating them on overpopulated areas. This actually worked really well during the Legion launch, where there were thousands of players all crowded around a single space in the middle of Dalaran, but we would only see maybe a few dozen or a hundred people instead. However, with the exception of roleplay realms, sharding was always on. Friends and even guildmates might be standing next to you, but they're not next to you. They happen to be on another shard. Camping for rare spawns was no longer a question of patience or tenacity, but whether you used add-ons or tools to realm hop to a desired shard. One day you could just be minding your own business walking through a zone, and the next a full raid group appears right on top of you and cuts you down. That particular instance would be addressed in the Battle for Azeroth expansion and the current iteration of WoW's cross-realm technology, which includes War Mode. War Mode is a kind of separate shard with clear divides and separate rules. It uses the region's pool of players and from there creates a number of shards while evening out faction distribution. 
Its implementation has been... <laughs> it's been shaky at best. Blizzard has employed different incentives, like luring players into war mode, while also offering bonuses to the less populous faction in order to even out the population. What we get right now is a mix of players who are eager to join war mode for the bonuses, as well as bloodthirsty PvPers eager to wipe out those players who are there only for the bonuses. So to summarize, or if you clicked over, there are features that Blizzard introduced that I'm going to describe with very blunt terms, like is this pro-community or anti-community? Cross-realm grouping for the purpose of completing raids or dungeons. Pro. Random matchmaking and the pre-made group tools as a backup option. Also pro-community. Random matchmaking and the pre-made group tools as a primary option. I'd say that's anti-community. Merging realms after careful consideration. Definitely pro-community. Dynamic systems like cross-realm zones and sharding. Definitely anti-community. This video essay has a primary goal, and that is to write and enforce a new mandate for WoW. It's similar to Blizzard's current philosophy to get players connected, as well as have them spend less time waiting and more time playing. But we're going to add to this. Each time you log into the world, you'll run into familiar friends and rivals that'll make your return to Azeroth feel like a return home. So there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle tangled in the mess that Blizzard made in their desire to keep players connected, regardless of whether these players wanted to or not. So I'd like for you to listen carefully to everything that I have to say because I just might have sort of fixed it. This won't be an easy or a clean fix. It's going to be disruptive, expensive, time-consuming, and extremely risky. When it comes to giving feedback like this, it's easy to get people to agree that yes, change should happen and things are bad. But getting into the specifics is where all of our paths will diverge. So as always with these kinds of videos, I encourage that you keep an open mind and of course to share your thoughts in a comment below. I just think that this is awesome though, so well, strap in, here goes. First we'll tackle this on the back end. We're going to take another pass at connecting low population realms with a focus on those that also have a big faction imbalance. The rough estimate is that the 120 existing realms and connected realms will be brought down to about 90. So the reality is that not too many players should be affected by this round of merges. The intention here is to have few to no low pop realms, just medium and higher. Faction imbalances on high and full realms, they're not going to be touched. It's unfortunate, but that's 15 years worth of history. 15 years worth of shaping each realm's community that can't simply be undone. Next is to abandon the premise of so-called connected realms and just go all in, do a full merge. To deal with naming conflicts, a really big change is going to happen to WoW that will allow players to have a second name. As a result, all existing characters will be flagged for a name change. I know I made this sound like it's no big deal. You might already be thinking, whoa dude, that's way too time consuming for Blizzard to ever want to do. But for the sake of taking WoW in a better direction, you know, sometimes big proposals are needed. And I'm just getting started. The Realm Select screen is also in dire need of an update. Right now, all you get is the name of the realm, and that's it. Every other source of information is third-party, and thus not all that reliable. So a new system will be in place on the Realm Select screen that displays more high-level information like the Realm's time zone, approximately when the Realm's peak time is, if you should expect a queue, 
and maybe a snapshot of whether a realm's population leads more towards the Horde or the Alliance. I think that this goes a long way as opposed to making a character on said realm and asking Trade Chat for a coherent answer. The last of the backend changes will be to take the 90 realms that we have now and then put them onto battle groups based on factors like data center location, time zone, population, and faction balance. I'll get into more of the specifics later, but for now, let's go in-game. Let's get to the good stuff. Cross-realm features will only be active in very, very specific situations. Now, you'll still be able to group up with friends on your battle tag or your real ID list, but the group finder tool is not going to be what it was. It's only going to let you search for players on your realm. Queuable content like the dungeon and raid finder is going to look for players on your realm first, followed by your battle group if too few players are found. The same will go for PvP content like Battlegrounds just as before. But the notion of cross-realm zones and sharding as you know it will be gone. Here are a few examples. If you're part of a cross-realm group to run maybe a raid or a Mythic Plus dungeon, you're not going to see any of your cross-realm members until you're either inside the instance, or if they were to compromise, maybe in the vicinity of the nearby meeting stone. If there's a world boss, or otherwise you need help out in the open world, no one outside your realm will be able to help you. Underpopulated parts of the world will no longer be populated with people from outside your realm. But charting will be in place in the event that an overpopulated area is disrupting the flow of the game. Something like this will stay in place in situations like an expansion or a patch launch. I get that this is going to need some explaining, because what I'm proposing here breaks a lot of the game as we know it. I intend to cover every situation, but if I miss something, please mention it in a comment and I'll try to answer it. Features like Looking for Dungeon and Raid Finder, they've gotten a lot of crap over the years as a replacement for being social within your realm. But by now, we've lived in a world of multiplayer matchmaking far longer than we've lived without it. What's more is that in recent years, when the introduction of the pre-made group tool and Mythic Plus, players can now optionally graduate from these old tools of almost anonymous matchmaking. Years ago, running the daily heroic dungeon was a typical thing because back then, it was one of the few things you can do. Today, probably not as much. Being able to connect with faraway friends is a feature that can't be undone. But I've been asking myself lately, is it necessary to have this sort of freedom in the outdoor world? The upcoming patch 825 is going to bring us Party Sync, a feature that lets higher and lower level players play together by syncing levels and quest progression down to the lowest denominator. It sounds like Party Sync directly contradicts what I'm proposing today. However, having a group where multiple players have different levels, different quest progression, and on top of that, different realms? I would consider this combination to be uncommon, to say the least. I think it's worth compromising this scenario if it means that we no longer have to deal with a raid group full of strangers suddenly showing up at our doorstep. How many of us have been using the group finder to quickly gather a bunch of random people that we don't know? smash the world boss, and then leave without a word, unconsciously knowing that you're unlikely to ever see them again. Warcraft Communities is an embattled system that I really wish would have been implemented better ever since its introduction, but this will be greatly affected by these changes as well. I mean, what's the point of cross-realm communities when cross-realm is so limited in scope? But consider this. I'm proposing to change the group finder so that it only works on your realm. 
Sure, there's going to be a bit less typing between the group leader and applicants, but over on the group finder, at least everyone is local to your realm, and subject to fame or infamy. In patch 825, you'll be able to search for communities based on keywords. What I'm implying here is that you can now search for a community that's dedicated to uh, pugging raids or Mythic Plus. So this means communities can now act as the replacement, the new cross-realm group finder. But in this case, each community is going to have its own social structure, leadership, and so on, complete with its rules and reputations. So in both instances, whether you're trying to work inside communities or in the pre-made group tool, if you act like a jerk, you're eventually going to be known as a jerk. Also, communities are still an answer to being part of several in-game networks at once between people from other realms. Communities that are cross-realm can help connect players for more social aspects of WoW, like cross-realm roleplay, or events like transmog contests. So we have to ask ourselves, is it fair that players would have to maybe go into a raid in order for something like this to happen? Or can there be special compromises, like allowing players cross-realm to see each other in sanctuary areas like Shatrath or Dalaran? These are just a few of the discussions that we ought to consider. And then we have to think about War Mode. Similar to cross-realm grouping, War Mode is like a box that can't easily be closed, if at all. Separating realms back into PvE and PvP realms could be just as jarring as it was when they were removed. Earlier in this essay, I mentioned battle groups, which are clusters of realms that were once used as separate pools for battlegrounds and the dungeon finder. The return of battle groups will serve an additional purpose, and that's to manage a single war mode shard per group. It's hard for me to be specific here, but I imagine that Blizzard knows just how many players per realm on average queue up for war mode. Based on that measurement, Blizzard can possibly group up realms based on size, time zone, and their participation in war mode. Since I'm talking about this though, I should remind you that I am not an engineer. I have absolutely no working knowledge on how complicated this can actually be. For now, let's go back to some wishful thinking. In practice, if a player switches to war mode, they're going to be placed into their battle group's war mode shard. So yeah, this is cross-realm tech at play, but it's limited to a few realms as opposed to all of them. Unlike today's war mode though, there will only be one shard. There's only going to be a very limited system that tries to manage faction imbalances. So just because you might be on a faction-heavy realm, it doesn't mean that your war mode shard might someday be imbalanced in the other team's favor. The most important point is that if you want a PvP or not, you still can. So let me get into some specific questions about what's going to happen in this new World of Warcraft. So if my realm suddenly becomes dead, will sharding or cross-realm help? And the answer is, frankly, no. If your realm is dead, it's dead. You can still queue for content or search a cross-realm community that specializes in making groups. But if you're looking for a lively, outdoor world experience, you probably want to consider shopping for a place to transfer to. Next, what happens when there are too many players in a single zone and sharding does happen? This should only happen during moments of great stress, like a patch or an expansion launch. Or if maybe, I don't know, a big streamer one day says, hey everyone, come to this realm over here. Hop into Dalaran and let's make a big old conga line. Sharding will go in only one direction, and that's to split players up. There are two ways the system would do this. It would either take the full shard and cut it into two, or it would take the excess players jumping in and placing them onto this new shard. 
Regardless, this situation should be pretty rare. Of course, when two people on the same realm want to party together, they'll end up joining the same shard. But no one's gonna want to be on the dead shard. So while the game might automatically move players back to the original shard as the population dwindles down, how about we also give players the option to manually queue up for the shard of their choice? This sort of transparency would help in the event that if all the fun is happening on shard B, it's easy for players from shards A or C to try hopping over as opposed to using the pre-made group finder to realm hop. This sort of system can work the same way in war mode as well. So just what sort of World of Warcraft do we have after all these changes? Just from logging in, players should have a clear understanding of the realm that they choose to be a part of. You're also going to get a second name on your character. I admit that this is just something that I wanted to squeeze in there, but it sounds pretty cool. The outdoor world is going to have that original feel that we experienced from vanilla all the way up to Cataclysm, and WoW Classic as well. You're going to see the people on your realm walk the land and fill the cities. There's no second guessing that the person in front of you is part of your local community. Group building will still be queuable at a basic level, but there will be strong social tools to encourage good play and cooperation in part of all players, or else. War mode is going to feel like a more consistent experience. Whether it's consistently in your favor or not is really up to you. What I'm proposing here are very, very big changes, and even then, this is still just a few improvements to try moving WoW towards a better direction. There's still a lot more work to be done with world design, class design, and working on making WoW a place of wonder and excitement at every level, not just max level. It took a long time for WoW to get where it is now. It may take just as long for WoW to get to where we want it to be. But until then, let's keep giving good feedback and suggestions. If you think any of these ideas are worth exploring, like and share this video with freaking everybody. Let Blizzard know how you feel. I also welcome some discussion in the comments if you want to refine, challenge, or just dog on these ideas. I like hearing them because it makes me try harder, and I don't intend on stopping. Thank you for watching. I know this was a long one, but I hope it was worth it. I'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and stay breezy. It doesn't matter if you're Alliance or play for the Horde. 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 Just buff the radar. Cause you're playing Warcraft today, baby. Way back when the world was young, we were all level one. I rolled the night up, put my leather on. I stepped out and faced the sun. There's nothing wrong with playing your faction because none of them are balanced, babe. So raise yourself up, then go near and far. This is your game to play. You better watch what you say. I didn't make a mistake. I'm in the best faction, baby. I'm alive to stay. There is no shame or regret. Just play hard and don't fret. I'm in the best faction, baby. I'm alive to stay. Ain't no other way, baby. I'm alive to stay.
Enter the fight and make a scene. Enter the fight and make a scene. Enter the fight and make a scene. Enter, enter, enter. Watch your back and watch all of your friends. Make them all accept the truth. Glory for all, victory is sure. Come and make them cry like you. Being a hoarding is not a sin. Shout it out with a grin. Don't be, don't be, don't. Don't be a noob, be super lean. Just prove the size of your epine. You pwn and cap and run that flag. You link a cheese and trade the brag. You feel these thoughts in epic gear. You'll be their MVP this year. Shut up and learn the class you play. Cause baby, we've arrayed today. No matter our troller belt, human, dwarf, or an elf. This is the best game, baby. World of Warcraft was made. No matter Tauren or dead, we'll know more dread I am. This is the best game, baby, world of Warcraft is fake You better watch what you say, I didn't make a mistake This is the best game, baby, I'm a liar to stay There is no shame or regret, just play hard and don't fret This is the best game, baby, I am born to stay This brings us to the end of episode 104 of Cops Run Radio. The only thing that I'm left with is to, as always, thank my contributors for the awesome content that they have provided. First of all, again, thank you very much, Charm, for the awesome, awesome toast to Warcraft. I'm just floored at the songs that you make. I'm almost at a loss for words. They're just so, so awesome. And I look forward to each new one. So thank you very much for this heartfelt song. And trust me that I've been sitting here listening to the lyrics and even crying because it's so, yeah. Again, like I said, I'm at a loss for words, but I think that's okay too sometimes when something goes to your heart and when you, when just the feelings overwhelm you. So, Charm, again, thank you very much. 
the other song from Charm I put in, I didn't know if I was going to be able to get the song Toast to Warcraft in the show. So I put in I'm a Warlock as well. I'm going to leave that one in as well. So you get a double dose of Charm. I mean, can we ever have enough of her? I don't think so. Also, thank you to Blizzard Entertainment for their WoW Classic with Creators Episodes 2 and 3. Episode 2 with Aaron Keller and Episode 3 with Jeff Kaplan, respectively. Hero Maradex with his two segments about add-ons. The first one, Top 10 Best Classic WoW Add-ons to have while leveling up. And the second one that is going to take us out of the episode today, which is 20 miscellaneous classic WoW add-ons, much like a honorable mentions in a way. Um, Noble87, his story of the Eastern Plague Lands, after we had the couple of segments over the last month or so, about the Western Plague Lands. Now we arrived at the Eastern Plague Lands, and that always held a, or still holds, a special place in my heart because this is the first time that we meet Chromie. And I remember first meeting her to this day, even though I haven't met her yet in Classic because my highest character so far is level 20. But that'll come eventually. Hazel. Hazelnutty Games, her WoW Classic Gold Tips, so you might be able to get your mount a little faster if you don't happen to be a Paladin or a Warlock, that is. And then we have the newcomer to the show, like I mentioned at the beginning, Mad Season Show, with his 10 handy tips and tricks for WoW Classic. Also, I would like to thank So So Breezy for his Will Blizzard Ever Learn? How WoW can be more like classic. And the last person I want to thank, Silver Latomi with her Warcraft Today. Might have to change a couple of the lyrics since a uh, little too focused on that other faction. But again, I'm bifactional as well. I somewhat begrudgingly admit that but yeah anyway again thank you very much everyone for downloading for listening if you have anything that you want to contribute you can you can go to our discord and submit feedback in the feedback section there also if you go to our twitch page twitch.tv slash radio you will see the schedule for our streams there. And I have set it up so that all the content creators that are providing content for the show are hosted. So if there's any content, if there are any streams that you would like to follow by content creators for Corpse Run Radio, you can go to the Corpse Run Radio Twitch page and see there if one of them is actively streaming. I've set it up so that they automatically get hosted. Also, 
we would appreciate it if you would give our Twitch channel a follow, as well as our Twitter channel and the Facebook page. Those are all there to interact with us for your notifications, to see when the streams are starting. So with all of that, again, thank you very much for listening. Have a great two weeks until episode 105. And now, to take us out, here is Hirumar Dex. Bye, everyone. In my last add-on video, I went over all the important add-ons you should get for leveling up. This video will go over nothing but other miscellaneous add-ons that aren't really needed, but are kind of neat. And as always, I'll have links to all of these add-ons in the video description. First up, we have MIK Scrolling Battle Texts. This is an add-on for scrolling battle texts, and I just prefer this one to the default one that shows white and yellow numbers above a target when you do damage to it. This one will show your damage scrolling to your right, as well as an icon of what that damage was. And it allows you to have notifications for whenever a cooldown comes up, what kind of damage you're taking, and a few other things. I usually turn off the notifications that show me the damage I'm taking, unless it's a crit or a special ability. That way it doesn't clutter up my screen. Leatrix Maps. This gives you a better map, smaller, not full screen, and will show you your flight paths and a big one. It shows you the location to raids and dungeon entrances on the map, as well as allows you to zoom into the map. Leatrix Maps is probably one of the best map add-ons you can have for Classic. Classic Codex. Now, this is another questing add-on, which adds a lot of neat little things to the mini-map and icons. If you open up your map, it will show you spots on the maps of the locations of quest mobs, instead of just where to go in order to kill quest mobs. So it'll actually show you quest spawns. And while you're actively doing a quest, it will give you little icons on mobs that are part of a quest you're currently on. And it also gives you a little question mark and exclamation points on the map and minimap to indicate quest locations. It also has a lot of other things to it. I mainly have those turned off, but it also allows you to auto accept quests and turn them in. Modern Quest Watch. This add-on just gives you a quest tracker that looks like the live version of it at the game. And it also gives you extra options in your quest UI to give you buttons to track your quests and to show you on the map where that quest is supposed to be completed. Handy Notes Flight Master Classic. I also have a Handy Notes add-on. Despite Leatric Maps also having flight point indicators on the map, this one will show me the flight paths in a little bit more of a noticeable red since I have a lot of other quest add-ons that clutter up my map. And it also shows you the flight paths when you open up to the bigger map. Leatrix Plus. This add-on allows you to add a lot of conveniences to your gameplay. Probably the most useful ones are the ability to sell all of your junk automatically, loot stuff quicker, auto turn in and accept quests, or repair all of your items as soon as you go to a vendor which can do that. This add-on is also very helpful if you're a streamer because it allows you to auto-block a lot of annoyances that people might try to trouble you with, as you can auto-block duels, party invites, and even set to auto-decline friend requests. Atlas. This add-on will give you maps of dungeons and raids, which are not in the game in Vanilla WoW, as well as give you little markers on those maps so that you don't get lost. Deja Classic Stats. This add-on will give you more details to your character stats, as the default one is pretty limited in what it actually shows you, and I think this add-on is the only way to actually see certain stats, but I don't remember off the top of my head what those are, since I always have this add-on installed and I can see everything. Atlas Loot Classic. 
This add-on will show you in-game the sources of basically all the loot you can obtain. It just saves you having to look up the stuff online. Death Counter. This add-on will simply give you a counter for how many times you've died. Details. This is a DPS meter add-on, which I personally think is better than Recount, and shows you how much you and your party's DPS is. Bagnon. This add-on will consolidate all of your bags into one big bag, so it's much more convenient to see your inventory. It also tracks all of your gold you have across all of your characters on your realm, and it also keeps track of the items in your bag, and will show you if your alts have any copies of an item you're currently mousing over. Healbot. This is a good add-on for healing, as it allows you to program it so that you can heal people by just clicking on their names without having to set up mouse over macros or stuff like that. Neat Plates. This is a really good nameplate add-on and gives better looking nameplates to mobs that you're fighting, and does two things that I found are really convenient. One of them is that it has a built-in cast bar timer, where it shows you a cast bar of an enemy NPC without requiring you to have the add-on specifically designed to see enemy cast bars. And it also has a combo point tracker that you don't need to get a combo point tracking add-on for, as it shows the combo points on top of the mob you're currently fighting. And if you have debuffs or dots, it will show those above the health bar, along with the durations and timers, if you also have classic aura durations and Omni CC installed as well. Tidy Plates Threat Plates this is another nameplate add-on, which does not work with neat plates, so you have to choose either this one or the other. But what this one does is it will show you debuffs on top of the enemy target, just like with neat plates, as well as a threat meter, as it will turn red if you have threat on a mob, or stay green if you don't have threat on them, and then turn yellowish if you're, you know, starting to get a little bit of threat. I like this add-on on my hunter to see if I pull threat for my pet or not, and then I use neat plates on my rogue to keep track of combo points. Tula Range. This add-on will simply add a red tint to your abilities if you're out of range. It will add a blue tint to them if you're out of mana and can't use the abilities. And I think it also has a gray tint for something else, but I don't know how that one works. I mainly use it on my hunter to see if I'm in the dead zone or not. Watto. This add-on will allow you to buy stacks from vendors easier, as you can hold shift and right click on it and it will bring up a little window to bring up stack size buying options. I think it has options for auto-selling junk and other vendor operations as well, but I mainly use it for the stack buying thing. Weak Auras. This is just the classic version of Weak Auras and allows you to do a whole bunch of different things. I personally just have mine set up to tell me when I need to feed my pet if he's unhappy. But there's so many different things you can do with this add-on, but it's commonly used to track cooldowns and buffs and stuff like that. Accountant Classic. This add-on will show you how much gold you have without having to open up your bag. And it also keeps track of all the gold gains through vendors, quests, auction house operations, basically anything which gives you gold or causes you to spend it. Auctionator. This is an auction house add-on which allows you to more easily buy stuff as it will list everything based on price per unit. That way you don't have to try to figure out which one is actually the cheapest one on your own. And it also allows you to sell things easier, as it will auto-undercut your competition if you just click on the cheapest item in the auction house. And finally, we have Peggle. This is a mini-game add-on that you can play whenever that just has you trying to clear all the blocks on the stage. Perfect for the long runs that are very common in Classic WoW. Alright, and that's it for all the miscellaneous add-ons. If you saw some add-ons in this video you'd like to know about that I didn't mention in this video, 
That's because they were probably in my other video, which I'll have linked at the end of this one, if you want to see some more essential add-ons than the ones I talked about here. Nice to see you guys. I'm gonna play Freebird. Everyone, a toast to 15 years of World of Warcraft. We met many years ago upon a dusty road. You, a humble priest, and me, a feeble rogue. We were the weakest of the weak, the lowest of the low. But when we fought together, our legend did grow. We battled our way from Black Rock Spire to Molten Core. Took 40 hours for Ragnaros and only wanted more. Our days of being weak are firmly in the past. And now our shields are stronger, our bonds are built to last. For the horde, it's time to toast to 15 years. Everyone, raise your sword. No enemy can defeat us. There's no battle we can't win. When we crunch the numbers, stand together and. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at mail at gmail.com or on Twitter at CorpsRunRadio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash radio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music, and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.